Hey everyone, this episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by Libro.fm. As you know, we at Books and Boba are strong proponents of supporting your local independent bookstores, but unfortunately, due to obvious reasons, it's been hard to get out lately. That's where Libro.fm comes in. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to make it possible for customers to purchase audiobooks through their local booksellers of choice. They offer over 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and hundreds of bookseller recommendations. And each purchase goes to support one of their 1,100 plus independent bookstore partners. Audiobooks are a perfect way to work through the TBR list of yours while doing chores, walking the dog, or just staying safe at home. All you need is a smartphone with the Libro FM app. Listeners of Books and Boba can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one by going to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code Books and Boba. With each listen, you can take pride in knowing that you're supporting your local bookstore as well as Books and Boba. Again, to access your two-for-one promo deal, um, go to Libro.fm and enter the code Books and Boba. And now to our show. You're listening to... You're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today to talk about our July 2020 book club pick, The Widows of Malabar Hill by Sujata Masi. Uh, Rira, yes. congratulations. You've made it through another month of uh, 2020. How do you uh, feel? Congratulations to you as well. <laughs> um, I, it's been more or less the same. Um, I cannot believe that it's going to be August. <laughs> it feels like August, though because it's getting hot but i get it i think um you and i both are um i guess rule followers in terms of like we're not really taking any like excess risks by going out like we don't have at least for me i don't feel the need to have to eat out at a restaurant um i'm perfectly fine with just getting takeout and eating at home yeah same here yeah i can i can, but I can I feel see like <laughs> You know, sometimes it just feels a little futile because I know there are people out there who are taking not even like there are people taking calculated risks, right? Like, okay, we, we want to get out because we're getting stir crazy. Um, let's go find a restaurant that does um, outdoor seating with the strictest regulations and have fun. But I also know there are a bunch of people who aren't being careful. And those are the people that are going to make all the sacrifice that we made these last five months mean, you know, nothing. You, you right? mean like that uh, TikTok party? Did you hear about no, that? No, what happened? Uh, so, God, like, I I don't know TikTok or YouTube celebrities. I'm sorry, kiddos, but I, I just don't dabble in that world anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Tyler Oakley, he, I, I think he's like a YouTuber. He uh, pretty much like called out a bunch of tiktokers who went to this humongous birthday party and there were like there were like over 50 people there and nobody was uh following social distancing or like some of them weren't wearing masks and it was just like you irresponsible people who (laughs) thought that like a birthday party was worth you know like sacrificing like you said five months of social distancing for everybody else like yeah it, it it was incredibly selfish and uh there was really no formal apology like the person who threw the party was was like oh i'll do better to follow social distancing and <laughs> it was like that doesn't really show it's, remorse or acknowledging what you did wrong i mean it's just a basic boilerplate right yeah yeah but that's enough <laughs> bleak news um instead of talking about the future we're going to be talking about the past uh, the Widows of Malabar Hill. It's a historical murder mystery. Um, I really like this book. Uh, it seems like a lot of people in our Goodreads forums liked it as well. Uh, Marvin, do you want to go ahead and read the book jacket description? Yeah. Uh, so the description of the book is as follows. Um, Bombay, 1921. 
Praveen Mystery, the daughter of a respected Zoroastrian family, has just joined her father's law firm, becoming one of the first female lawyers in India. Armed with a legal education from Oxford, Praveen also has a tragic personal history that makes her especially devoted to championing and protecting women's rights. Mystery Law is handling the will of Mr. Omar Farid, a wealthy Muslim mill owner who has left three widows behind. But as Praveen goes through the papers, she notices something strange. All three have signed over their inheritance to a charity. What will they live on if they forfeit what their husband left them? Praveen is suspicious. The Farid widows live in Perda, strict seclusion, never leaving the women's quarters or speaking to any men. Are they being taken advantage of by an unscrupulous guardian? Praveen tries to investigate and realizes her instincts about the will were correct when tensions escalate to murder. It's her responsibility to figure out what really happened on Malabar Hill and to ensure that nobody is in further danger. So before we uh, start the discussion, uh, trigger warnings, domestic violence, victim blaming, sexual harassment, and discrimination. Um, Also, spoiler warning, since this is a murder mystery novel, uh, I highly recommend that you read the book and then come back to listen to this episode. Yeah. Uh, So, Rira. Yes. Where do you want to start with this one? Um, I think we should start with the author's uh, background and just like the inspiration behind Purveen. So Sujata Massey was born in England and she was raised in the U.S. Right now she lives in Baltimore and her parents are from India and Germany. Uh, So she did a lot of traveling. Uh, She actually wrote another mystery series back in the 90s, which was set in Tokyo while she was uh, living in Japan. And it's the Rei Shimura mystery series. Uh, But this book was more in the realm of uh, own voices. Um, She did an incredible amount of research for this book. I don't know if the people in our Goodreads forums read the acknowledgments at the very back, but uh, I tend to read all of the acknowledgments because I am usually really curious as to uh, who the author thank. And it gives me like a sense of uh, their journey when it came to writing the book. And she, Massey doesn't have a background in law. Uh, She reached out to a lot of people. She reached out to legal historians at universities, both in uh, the U.S., who specialize in South Asian law, and also in Bombay. She uh, contacted magazine editors uh, who are familiar with Parsi customs. Uh, she went. She actually went to Mumbai and she visited all of the historical uh, institutions. She reached out to like even railway experts so she could figure out like how people were able to travel from one place to another. Um, and even with the food, she I, I think she interviewed a bunch of like food writers as well. So like the food descriptions in this book are fantastic. And our main character, Purveen, is actually inspired by two um, women attorneys. Uh, One of them was Cornelia Cornelia Sorabji. She was the first woman to read law at Oxford and the first woman to take the British law exam in 1892. 1892, that's a lot earlier than I would expect the first first Indian woman to, uh, to study law. And yeah. the other woman that uh, Praveen is based on is Mithan Tatalam, who also studied law in Oxford and was the first woman admitted to the Bombay Bar uh, back in 1923. So, um, yeah, like Praveen, this this book is set in the 1920s. So, it, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's actually it's really interesting that it's actually based on women who did practice law so early on. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I don't think Rira and I can claim to be experts in the cultures of India. Um, but this book really, you can tell that the author did a lot of research, especially to portray like Mumbai slash Bombay during this time period, which was like pre-partition. Um, it was, it depicts a, a Mumbai that's, um, very multicultural, very multi-faith, like a lot of different people, customs, cultures, religions, and even value sets like kind of coexisting with each other, um, which made for a really interesting setting, especially in the context of Praveen and her father, um, Jamshedi, as lawyers who had to 
you know, navigate these these waters, right? Because every single community has their own set of laws that they have to understand and know how to argue. And um, this also takes place under the backdrop of this was when India was still an imperial colony, right? It's still part of um, the British Empire. And so you have the added um, wrinkle of a colonizing power in the form of white people in the mix as well. Yeah. Um, uh, like you said, I'm I'm not an expert with uh, 1920s India. Um, but in terms of like England, 1920s. So that was during George V, um, who was the grandson of Queen Victoria. So it's so it's two reigns after the Victorian era. So it's not he, very... He's the, the, the dad of the King's Speech King, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so this was during a time where there was a rise in socialism um, and just... Um, I think it was like at the height of the British Empire. And then it crumbled. <laughs> I would say probably it would be the beginning of the decline, right? Because this would be post World War One. Um, Europe is pretty much in ruins, right? Economically, definitely, right? And I think because of the of the costs of fighting the First World War, England's power over the world starts to decline. Yeah, and also like uh, this is when other um, other monarchies start to fall. So this is like yeah. the fall of Russia, fall of Germany, and England is pretty much like the only monarchy, uh, only European monarchy left. Yeah. So the story takes place in this very unique time period where there are there's a lot going on. And I think the setting is probably one of the most interesting things about the book. Um, but at its core, the book is also still a murder mystery, right? It's a this type of mystery is termed like a cozy mystery, much like the the one we read a couple months ago. Um Mimi Lee, Mimi Lee, gets, Lee a gets a clue. Yeah, where I guess, um, can you refresh my memory of what a cozy mystery entails? Uh, so a cozy mystery, like, obviously, you know, <laughs> obviously the mystery is like a main storyline, but it's more based on the character, mo- more based on like the atmosphere of uh, the setting, for example. So um, it's not really violent and it tends to be a little bit more slow paced. Yeah, because in this murder mystery, the murder happens, I want to say, like, pretty late through the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was I, really surprised. I was like, when I was reading it, I um, thought it was going to be about who killed the patriarch of the family. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> I, I was just like, I, I'm around like at the 70 page mark and the murder hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so when it did happen, it kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting an actual murder, murder. I thought this was more of like, was Omar Farid poisoned by one of his wives or his caretaker? In the, but that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah, because like, um, you think that the murder is like, is, is the patriarch, right? But then it turns out to be somebody else entirely. And right. yeah, it, it was just really surprising. And I actually really like the fact that, um, that pervy, like, like she is doing a lot of investigative work, but it's so entrenched in in like litigation and law and how to be creative in terms of like in terms of like getting interviews with the widows. Like how far can you go within the realm of law in order to uh, solve this mystery? And I thought that was like really interesting. You wrote in our notes that Perveen was kind of like Phoenix Wright in a way. I mean. The whole story reminded me of like, um, so for people who don't play the video games, uh, Phoenix Wright is a series of, I guess, detective slash legal visual novels by Capcom about a hapless defense attorney who does the impossible to get his clients, his innocent clients uh, acquitted, right? And a lot of like, there was one specific scene where I was like, aha, that's Phoenix Wright for sure. Where um, uh, Praveen is in real, like is talking to one of her clients, one of the widows, in a car, and she was like, "Aha, a contradiction," and then presses her on it. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> 
that's definitely a Phoenix Wright move right there. I thought I, I thought it was a really creative way to uh, set up this mystery because none of the male investigators can talk to the widows because of the law of Perda. Um, the widows are not allowed to talk to other men. Um, well, I, gu- I guess they can talk to other men, but they have the right to refuse and men can't touch them. They have to stay hidden. And this is uh, this is a custom that is followed by uh, Muslims in, 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 in Mumbai. And I just thought it was interesting that Purveen, who also lives in Mumbai, like who, who is born and bred in Mumbai, is kind of still unfamiliar with the custom. And yeah. I was really blown away by the level of diversity in in the community. Um, yeah, I mean, like even within her own her own household, her family is Parsi, which is, um, I guess, the term Indians use for Indian Zoroastrians, which is like a Gnostic faith that comes from Persia, right? Yeah, it actually predates Christianity and Islam, so it it is a very I think it's like one of the oldest religions in the world that is still practiced today. Yeah, it's a Gnostic, uh, monotheistic um, religion, so it's similar to to Christianity, but um, some of the the customs are are, are a little different. And even the way uh, there's like a scene where uh, Purveen visits the house, the Farid mansion, and one of the children of the widows they they remark like, "Hey, why are you wearing your sari wrong?" <laughs> That's like one scene where you realize like, oh, there's a lot of diversity, and India is not just a monolith. And I thought it was a really interesting choice that Sujata Masi made uh, by making Purveen uh, a Parsi. Yeah, but also like the time period that this p- takes place in, right? Because this is um pre-partition. Like it was when India still was the entire subcontinent. Um, they hadn't like divided it up between you know Muslims and Hindus. I mean, I, I think showing everyone kind of living in relative harmony. Um, might have read a little unrealistic, but at the same time, I did believe this world where you know people were very tolerant and or understanding of everyone's different um, beliefs, right? And that comes from the people in power too. There was a scene where um, the the lawyer, the counsel of the governor of Mumbai, um, was talking to um, police to figure out how to get fingerprints of the three widows in the house where the murder happened, and basically advising them you can't go in and force them that will cause a major incident and that will cause unrest right because of like perceived um attacks on religious freedom or religious customs so you know it shows a world where a lot of people like where there are a lot of different cultures intersecting and colliding but also people who understand like those differences which you know it was nice to read about I don't know how realistic that really was. And again, like I, I wasn't there in the 1920s. It could have just been like this, which makes it really sad because I feel like these days the amount of harmony has decreased, or at least that's that's my read on it. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right. Like there there's definitely been a decline in just like tolerance in general. And that's not just India. Like <laughs> it's any country that has suffered from colonialism. Um you see that in China, you see that in um like you, you see that in other South Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of this, and I think, especially in South Asia, right? A lot of that has to do with the fact that there are now borders separating people, right? Like in this book, um, this book takes place both in Mumbai slash Bombay and Kolkata slash Calcutta, um, which is on the border of, currently on the border of India and Bangladesh. Again, during this time period, there was no Bangladesh. I think Sujata uh, Massey was really smart to set it during this time where you could see all these interlocking systems. In addition to, right, this is when the British were still here, right? So you also have that layer of imperialism, colonialism, and um, the fight for self-rule um, added into the mix, which will probably lead to some additional juicy cases uh, one of our Goodreads members, Clara, um, said, I've been reading Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers' Golden Age Mysteries, and while I find them sort of soothing, the number of times a racial or anti-Semitic slur comes up was kind of wearing. 
Widows was a nice, cozy mystery that was mercifully free of and quite critical of the casual British racism. And I definitely agree. Uh, That is a thing that bothers me a lot when I read mysteries that are set in the 1920s and also just in India or any colonial country. It's it's just like, ugh. Yeah. (laughs) And even the one cop that was a jerk or the cops that were jerks. Okay, racist one cop? Jerks. No, it was like the entire police force, <laughs> Marvin. I like the sub, sub, was sub-inspector thing. Yeah, sub-inspector, um, yeah. But he, but he was such a jerk at the beginning, and the only reason why he was nice to uh, Perveen was the fact that she's the only person who could interview these widows. And I thought it was just really interesting how... Um, like when Perveen, she hears about these widows who are living in seclusion and who might be abused by uh, their their keeper. I don't know what the actual title title it's is. The but household like their, agent, I think is what they call it. Yeah, them. the household agent. Uh, in her perspective, she thinks that the women are kind of living poor quality lives. But as the investigation goes on, she realizes that because of the Perda laws, they don't have to be fingerprinted. They can refuse to talk with the police. They can't be compelled to go to court. Uh, they don't have to give testimonies. These are all things that um, th- these are all things that were within their rights. And in a really weird way, in this patriarchal setup, they have power. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And the fact that I, I will get into this a little bit more. But Perveen also was forced to be in seclusion, even though she has all of these rights as as a woman, as as a female solicitor. Well, I think that's what gives her pause when she reads about, you know, the fact that the three widows were donating their entire inheritance to um, the family charity, which it's uh, it's a walk, right? Which I think is um, like of sort of foundation that the family runs right because she's seen the way that cultural laws not even not just the laws of the land but like cultural laws can oppress women and have oppressed women so i think it's justifiable the way that she is immediately suspicious right because she it's it's happened to her like she and i think we can get into it like this story is a dual narrative right it's it's an it's an origin story yeah it's it's a dual narrative in terms of it takes place in two time periods right there's a flashback portion interspersed between the murder mystery in present day quote unquote 1921 and i don't know if this is how this next book is going to be set but there's still half the origin still missing which is how she became an advocate for women's rights right like we, we know she is but when we leave her at the end of the that origin story she hasn't gotten there yet right she's taking charge of her life but she hasn't decided what direction that life is going to go one thing that surprised me was how progressive her parents were especially her father uh, Jamshetty because mm. he uh, throughout the book you see how supportive he is he is actually like advocating her to go to law school to become the first female solicitor of Bombay I mean and isn't that just a typical Asian parent though you gotta be a lawyer to you know well, have my that's, well the thing is it's like during the 1920s and there aren't other female solicitors at this time in that city. And uh, there were very, very few female lawyers in India. So I thought it was really progressive and surprising that her father was very insistent that she go down down this path rather than getting married at the weird normal age, which was like, what, 14, 15 years old yeah. in their community. And just i i had to look it up because i i was a little bit skeptical to be honest i i was wondering if uh parsi parents were actually this progressive and it turns out that parsi parents in the 1920s were that progressive they were advocates for their daughters to study in education law or medicine and a lot of the wealthy parsi parents they did send their kids to oxford uh to to schools in england and well not uh, all Parsi parents are progressive. Well, I said I said wealthy <laughs> Parsi parents, and you see you see like divisions in the Parsi community as well—the Orthodox Parsis and the ones who 
uh, are a little bit more modernized. And I thought it was really interesting that um, I I thought it was really interesting because like the uh, the mystery family, they are in this weird they're in this weird privileged position because the Parsi fortune has been built upon colonialism. Like the family, they run a construction company and they built they built all of these buildings for uh, the East India British Company. Um, it, it's just like a weird contrast. Because I, I keep saying weird because uh, it's not something that I expected. Because Praveen is definitely for India self-rule, but she understands that her privileges are based in colonialism. So here is a like a central tension that I kept reading um, while while reading this book, which is, I mean, there's this you know conflict between progressive ideas and traditional ideas, right? And it made me think about because we've been thinking a lot about colonialism lately because it's been a big topic of discussion. But how much of those progressive ideals come from Western thinking? The idea of things like science, medicine, rationality. How much of that is like because of colonialism and the idea that colonialism brings progress to backwards places, which is like the justification of colonialism and the British Empire in general, right? And I find myself in conflict with like, if India wasn't a colony, would Praveen even exist as she is now? Would we have like, even the rule of law, like they're practicing British law right in conjunction with parsi bengali a muslim law but which are all different by the way yeah but the system of you know law as in courts and barristers and things like that that also comes probably comes from the english system and you find it hard to condemn the whole thing but would there have been another way to spread progressive ideals if it wasn't forced upon them yeah i mean that's the thing when when cultures combine, right? Like that's the positive aspect. You get the best of both worlds, but also uh like one one part is going to yeah. be oppressed. And I feel like part of what's making me uncomfortable is there is you don't really see the conflict of colonialism, right? You don't see the brutality, you don't see the the violence of colonialism in this book because it's it's not part of it. It's not that they're not interested in talking about it. It's just it doesn't come up, right? Because like we said, Perveen, the mystery family is essentially like upper class. Like they're not, they're not aristocracy, but they are part of the system. Like they've benefited from the system. They enjoy privileges. Like they live well, they live in mansions, right? And I guess class conflict isn't a central part of this book, but I can't help but try to like grasp at it while reading it, you know? Yeah. Like, like you said, like, uh- I, I do wonder, like, what India would have been like if uh, British law wasn't introduced into their system and how, like, that works in conjunction with family law. Not just British law, but just, like, medicine, science. Like, yeah, like, a medicine and science yeah. uh, with... And it, it was... It, it, is a conf- it is a conflicting view because, like, for example, like, Jamshedi, uh, Praveen's father... You know, he's very progressive in terms of getting his daughter to have this top-notch education and uh, this job. But at the same time, he, he, he he's like, don't walk alone. You're not allowed to. You're, you're not allowed to um, do these things un- unaccompanied. And even in the terms of, like, the contracts with the widows, he is kind of dismissive about it, even though he you know, defended his own daughter in in her separation case in Calcutta. I mean, much like Regency era England, like Austin era England was very like all about decorum and etiquette. This 1920s Mumbai was also very much about decorum, etiquette, maintaining your honor as a woman. But that's not specifically Victorian. <laughs> that I feel like in all patriarchal societies, that's always going to be the case. Like women don't have agency; they are not allowed to. The people who read Convenience Store Women last month, <laughs> like I really do wonder what your thoughts are on this book 
because the criticism of last month's book was the misogyny and the sexism and how that really brought a dark cloud in the book. Yeah. Like this book was like a hundred times <laughs> uh, more, more dark in terms of women's lack of rights and uh, just customs in general i i yeah. think i will have nightmares about the red about the red room about the menstrual seclusion room uh it was really unsettling to read about like how perveen and how her in-laws were enforcing this really like archaic orthodox custom yeah definitely like while this book definitely pulls its punches when it's talking about colonialism it pulls no punches talking about the misogyny of traditional orthodox views that were prevalent in in india during this time period yeah and even even in communities where like seclusion is uh not part of the culture anymore the culture like the thought pattern of menstrual is considered dirty and you should be ashamed of it and just like the shaming of it is is really unsettling to me. And I read this book while I was on my period. <laughs> so it was it was like double unsettling and just I was just like I I would die in in a room like that. And just, I think someone someone did the, die in a room like that. I, I yeah, someone did die in a room like that and no one helped her. And you see this division in the Parsi community who you know, they seem to be really progressive. Um, like legal separation, that that is a thing. Divorce is a thing that is allowed. I mean, there but are But you're not allowed strict... to divorce if your husband is with a hoe. A prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is allowed, apparently, under the law. And just like how um Perveen got venereal disease. Yeah. And like that was considered I mean, like there was a de- there was definitely a lot of victim shaming, right? And even the idea of a venereal disease was so um, so foreign, right? Even within Perveen herself, and she definitely is still kind of coming into her own confidence during the present day parts where she is you know standing up for herself. But in the origin story, like the saga of her quitting law school because she was being bullied by all the boys who think that her being there will diminished their degrees i felt real bad for her but i I understood why she was fed up right i was actually really surprised that she quit law school well because because like you know this is about her path to becoming a solicitor (laughs) so i thought she was going to stay in law school but then when she once she quit and she got married i was like how does she how does she get a law education well i mean that's her journey right and they put the seeds that like she is obviously not with this guy anymore um but i mean the perveen of 1916 would have done that right because that perveen has a lot of internalized when she's being abused by her mother-in-law she takes it like internally like, oh it is my fault right when she gets when she first gets diagnosed with the venereal disease with gonorrhea she thinks it's her fault somehow like how could i have possibly gotten this disease when like anyone like all the readers, even for the doctors, like it's pretty obvious where you got it from. Yeah. You know? And oh no, like with the whole in-law situation, that that was really hard to read. Um just the suffocating nature of it. How Perveen couldn't like there's a scene where Perveen she she wants to go to the local college and she has the money. She doesn't need financial support from her in-laws, but they said, but the college says you need permission from your husband and even your husband's father. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I, I was just like, how, like what? Like how? <laughs> like how? And how, like how her husband, who was initially quote unquote supportive because he turns out to be a fucking con artist. He was a fucking worst. He's and- also very dirty. So many STDs on that boy. Oh, man. I mean, he got syphilis at the end. And I was just like, you're going to die. Yeah. And I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> what did you think about his last like his last attempt at gaslighting her at the end? Uh, like of of him being like, hey, you should kill me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was gaslighting. I think it was. 
I think it was just like, I'm in so much pain. Please kill me. Like, please have mercy. You wanted her to do it, though, so that she feel bad. That's my theory. Okay, well, that is a viable theory. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, just the way her in-laws treated her and how the rest of the Orthodox Parsi community treated her. They, they were just like, hey, you're rich. You're spoiled. You don't know how to cook. You don't know how to do any of these womanly duties. So therefore, you're lesser. That was just really hard to read uh, for me. Um, it it was really traumatizing. <laughs> uh, and trauma is a really big theme in this book as well. Yeah. I mean, she, she's obviously traumatized by the whole experience. She's always jittery when she hears broken bottles. Um, she is instantly suspicious of a lot of men. With- good reason because a lot of them tend to be very bad people (laughs) yeah and you know you you can see how these experiences turn her into the type of lawyer she is in present day slash 1921 um as someone who even when she's like her inner monologue is scared she puts on a strong front right to stand up to patriarchy and misogyny when it's being um presented to her i mean the only time she was really caught off guard was when she was kidnapped um for like a chapter but even then she was very rational right in thinking like, how do we get out of this yeah yeah she was still in control of what she could be in control of which i feel like is something that you learn to do when you're in situations where you you're not really in control of a lot of things focus on what you can control and figure out the solution oh okay so like since we talked about young Perveen, what were what were your thoughts on her whole uh, engagement and her path to getting married. I mean, I was suspicious of the dude right from the, the jump. Yeah, right from the get-go, um, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's more that they foreshadow a lot of the drama that's going to come up. Like, they foreshadow the fact that, like, she gets jittery when she's around broken bottles. And so that painted a picture of, like, domestic violence. So, like, during these flashback sequences, I was kind of bracing myself for when the shoe was going to drop. Because you see... You see cracks in the facade from the beginning, right? When the mother is shown to be a very orthodox and very um, controlling person. Um, you see the small signs that like, and I think the book does a really good job showing obvious signs of abuse and of infidelity and of um, gaslighting that anyone can see except the person experiencing it, right? Because a lot of times I was like, come on, Praveen, you're smarter than this. Yeah, but she's also 19 years old. <laughs> and yeah, she was definitely taken advantage of, right? She had this very romantic notion. You know, the dude was charming. And on paper, it seemed like a good love match. But she's definitely oblivious to her privilege, right? Like, she couldn't fathom that, like, there were any other reasons why his parents would be so eager to have him marry her. And I think that was the first red flag because she didn't conform to that list that his parents wanted for him yeah like she was yeah she wasn't 15 which is so gross because uh karush was was what 28 when yeah yeah like that's that's almost 10 years apart um the the fact that like perveen she pretended to be pious in order to get her potential in-laws to like her, mm-hmm. it, it is such a common thing because, uh, because like women in patriarchal societies, they are kind of taught to to cater to other people's wishes, and um, I thought I thought it was also like really interesting because the custom at the time is you let your parents decide who you marry, like that is like the typical way to go. Like your parents know best. Like love comes after marriage. That is that is a way to build a successful relationship. And uh, Praveen's like, no, we fell in love, and you know, like, let's not do this antiquated romance. And it turns out that her modern romance doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, well, I think part of is is just she was afraid that if she waited, his parents would just arrange something for him, and they they would have no chance. So. There's also that sense of like, you know, they were obviously in that initial infatuation phase where she was like head over heels. And like during that time, she 
feared that it would end and so made this rash decision that like yes i want to marry this guy that i just met a month ago yeah and then the parents were like oh we need to get you need to get married in like two months and you have to get married in our town because it doesn't it doesn't match with our schedule and that was like another red flag because it's like it's the bride's wedding the bride's family is going to pay for everything (laughs) and i guess it shows how i guess progressive jamshidi is also that he didn't just say no what do you like i refuse that he was like well if this is what you really want i don't like it but i will support it but in hindsight he should have been like no (laughs) i mean he's a jamshidi is a very practical man he seems like the type of person who like yeah go go f up and i'll i'll come save you when when you need me right like go make your mistakes learn your lessons and then if if you need me i'll always be there and i think as much as he probably wasn't like father of the year he was always there for his daughter yeah yeah um i i would say like that trial scene in calcutta was more it was the most suspenseful part (laughs) of the book it was more suspenseful than when um Perveen gets caught by Sakina, who turns out to be the murderer, and she's trying to like weasel her way out. Like I felt more tension in that court scene because I really wasn't sure if she was going to get the separation, even though she wasn't with um, Karush in the 1920s chapters. Because in my mind, I'm like, well, like, are did they grant legal separation, or is she just living with her parents in like this unofficial? separation right because like are the parents gonna ever call her back like are like is her husband involved in the kidnapping like there were yeah, a lot i mean of that was questions. that was the implication right because the, one of the subplots during the one of the subplots was that she got the feeling that kurush was in town and that someone was following her and so that was always like kind of in the background of okay here's a secondary thing that is a clear and present danger but I need to be a professional to follow up on my job. But, you know, for us, the reader, we were always reading for, okay, we know that there's this like crazy ex-husband out there somewhere who is really mad and a giant dick, right? And at the end, it turns out that he's super sick from syphilis and about to die. So he's up no danger, really. But it's kind of that, that Schrodinger's cat thing where before we knew that, that was always a danger for her that was out there. I think it, it was a really good red herring. <laughs> um, so, like, we, we've we talked more about her abusive relationship with uh, her in-laws. Um, and we did mention, like, how that story seemed to be more compelling than the actual murder mystery. But we should talk a little bit more about the murder mystery. Like, for me, I thought they were actually equally compelling. I was, I was oh, interested really? in the origin story, but I was really interested in the mystery that was unfolding as well. I mean, one is a story about um, escaping in abusive relationship, and the other is like your traditional murder mystery, right? And um, but it's also escaping a, an abusive relationship because their uh, household agent is abusing them. They like he is swindling them of their money. He is lying to them. He's not letting them know their rights. Uh, he's able to pretty much do whatever he please without repercussion. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the setup, right? But the actual like the actual execution of the mystery part was kind of like a boilerplate mystery, and it turns out it wasn't a crime of like self defense against an abuser. It was a crime of passion, right? Unless I'm reading that wrong. Am I reading that wrong? No, no, no. <laughs> I, th- I think you're right because uh, it turns out that Sakina and. Uh, uh, Mr. Mukri, who is the victim, they're cousins and they were in love. And she finds out that um, he, he's been lying to her. I, he was lying to her, right? It wasn't. It wasn't just the fact that he was stupid and he didn't understand how the whole financial. No, if she found out through Perveen's consultation that he didn't have the authority to do the things that he was promising her, because it turns out her. Sister wife, um, Raiza, is the Mutabali, executor. is the executor of the of the walk. So, like, basically, he was he's been lying to her, which made her really angry. Yeah, I I just like wonder, like, what was Mukri getting out of it since he couldn't get the money from from the walk? Well, that's why he was having them donate all their money to the walk so that he could start his 
um, his boys' home, his school, which yeah, his like boys' I think boarding was school, actually a slush fund for himself. But then, how could he get the slush fund though? Because he is not the executor of the charity; he has no control over the money. Um, I like that. Just made me think. Oh, he didn't read the fine print well enough. Like he act. Like I thought he actually thought he could take the money somehow when he had no rights to. Like he doesn't have any power in in terms of like getting the money. Hmm. In any case, he he lied. He was also forcing them to sign things, and yeah, he did forgery and and stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah, maybe he would have gotten the money. But I think it was a really interesting setup with uh, Perveen doing the private consultations because you find out that each wife doesn't have all of the informations. They have secrets from each other. And while they seem to live harmoniously, there's definitely jealousy. There's definitely, uh, you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's what I meant when I said like the, the mystery part of this was pretty much like a it's your typical murder mystery only instead of being set in like some country home in like England it's set in multicultural Mumbai I feel like the pieces are the same but the way they interact is different because of you know the the purda and because of of the way that um colonial law and um Parsi law and and Muslim law are uh, intersect here but at its core you have one a giant house with secret passageways. You have people who aren't forthcoming with their secret relationships to each other. And you have a lot of conflicting agendas, right? So, I mean, in essence, it is your murder mystery um, just in a, in a setting we haven't seen before. But the fact that it takes place in a literal clue house was pretty, I thought it was pretty awesome when like Praveen was going over the floor plans with Alice and like discovering that, yeah, this is like this is literally a murder mystery house, um, except in the Muslim style. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, I, I think someone in our Goodreads forum had mentioned it seemed a little bit unbelievable when um, Perveen didn't insist on finding Amina, the daughter of Razia, when when she went missing. I think, I mean, I can believe it in the fact that she probably, I mean, Praveen definitely takes her job way too seriously. And so I can see that her, her devotion to client, like attorney client privileges would cloud her judgment there. I mean, it was definitely a bad move, but not like, I don't know if it was unjustified. Yeah, it was, Um, I don't think it was unjustified. And they did mention how, if they report that a girl is missing, that girl, that girl's reputation might be tainted forever, and uh, it might ruin their chances of getting married. So um, I did find that part justified. Yeah, but it was. Which, but it I, which was I feel also like, like Amina's. The, I feel like Amina's the type of girl who probably would be okay with that. Yeah, and but like the thing is, like so much time had passed. I think it was like three days. That is that is passed, and they yeah. didn't find her. And eventually, like Jamshedi was like, "We need to involve the police in this because a child is fucking missing for three days. Who <laughs> who the fuck knows uh, where she is?" That part, I was like, I kind of wish Perveen did that. Like, I kind of wish he was like, "Okay, like enough days have passed. Like, we need we need to talk to the police." Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say it's still in character, though, because she is technically still very inexperienced and very, like... Impulsive. I mean, even with all her, like, external confidence, um, very unsure of herself the entire time. It never felt like she was ever really in control. She was just making a lot of snap just decisions based on what she... And she noticed a lot. Like, she was a very good investigator. and She's able to, like, again catch the contradictions uh, between like uh, what people were telling her in a very you know phoenix wright style um but she was a very also 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 much like phoenix wright she was also kind of bumbling for a lot of the the story yeah she was she was definitely bumbling a lot but she because she was such a good lawyer that made her a good investigator because lawyers they have to they have to follow up on the paperwork 
they have to yeah. they have to interview possible witnesses and she did that she went to the market to figure out uh if Mosin the guard actually did go by uh Rosewater and she notices that it wasn't Rosewater it was Sandalwood and that's what made her believe that there was an affair and um it was really nice that she was good at her job because the police were very bad at their job. <laughs> it, it was just like the way they dismissed her and the way she, you know, followed up on a lot of these clues and leads and the police just being like, you're a woman, you're not even a real lawyer, you can't represent your clients in court. Why should we? Well, they were all like, yeah, we caught the guy already. Case closed. Which is which is something that happens in modern day. Like, police now, like, po- police now, they just want to catch anybody if the case goes on for too long. Yeah, the cops were very, um, the cops weren't good at their jobs. They were bad in investigating, and they were bad in terms of, like, not knowing customs and how to, like, get around that. They were just, like, yeah. bad in every single area. So it was really nice that Praveen was good at her job. Um, yeah. Uh, what did you think about her her partner, Alice. her Watson? Alice was, um, well, first of all, was, she, she's queer. It was refreshing to see, yeah, it's refreshing to see, like, the white person as, like, the sidekick. Like, it was, it was nice because, you know, she seems to be very progressive. Like, it sounds like she is for India self-rule and she wants to immerse herself in the culture because she actually was born in India and she grew up with, like, an Indian uh, nanny, grew up with the food. Yeah, I mean, she's an ally, but she also does some, like, white feministy things. Oh, like, yeah, she's, she's definitely, like... Uh, her mom is the worst. Her mom is like the worst Karen. <laughs> worst Karen ever. And uh, Alice definitely has moments where she forgets her privilege. Um, but it's nice that towards the end of the book, she uses her white woman privilege for good. Yeah. But like you said, it was really nice that, you know, we have a white sidekick. And it wasn't the other yeah. way around. And I like that they showed that they were... Like they were probably each other's support when they were both at Oxford, right? And I think both are marginalized in their own way. You know, um, Praveen obviously because she is Indian, and Alice because she is queer and also a woman. I thought they were going to kiss, though. I was waiting for that scene. Oh, you thought it was going to be a queer romance? <laughs> the seeds were there. The I was seeds like, are mm. there? Because um, obviously, Praveen is over men, and. I don't know if I read it correctly, but I think the gonorrhea did make her barren, right? Or sterile? yeah, they they said like it's it like she can't have children anymore. But I like I don't know if it was mm. just like oh she's diseased, so no one wants to be with her, so therefore she can't have children. Yeah, I guess I I don't exactly know how gonorrhea works. So well, like gon- gonorrhea, like obviously it's curable now. Mm-hmm. Um. It's curable now. Like you just have to take like medication. There, like there's obviously complications if you have gonorrhea and you're pregnant. Um, yeah, but I, I read that the implication was that she went undiagnosed for a while. Oh yeah, for right. like a long while, and that is the difference uh, between the Orthodox Parsi community and uh, the modern Parsi community. Because her her mother in law is like, just I don't know what fucking cure she she thought of but <laughs> like it was like stay in the red room forever and like, yeah and then like much. her mom like and like Perveen's mom she's like we have to go get you to a gynecologist like an actual real gynecologist i don't know like i back then was gonorrhea treatable i don't know i mean they knew about it so i'm sure they probably had i don't know this was also the um probably I mean, modern medicine was a thing. When, when was penicillin discovered? I want to say like it was about this time, right? Let's let's Wikipedia that real quick. Okay, so since we're like Wikipedia and Googling a lot of things, uh, I had to Google a lot during um, while I was reading this book, simply because <laughs> I am a very visual person. And uh, I just wanted to see like how people dressed at that time. I wanted to see like how different parsis looked from uh bengalis I mean, there's an appendix and, at the end of the um, yeah well the i too. read it on my phone 
So, <laughs> so I didn't see the last page until I reached the last page, and the the cry of frustration I had <laughs> it was, oh my gosh! If only I had read that like before, uh, before I started reading the book, it would have been really helpful. Right. Looks like penicillin was was um, discovered in 1928. So, so not quite yet. Not quite yet, but I want to say like medical science was probably a thing by now. They weren't you know bleeding people anymore, or at least not as much. Um, but they knew how to diagnose it. So I I think they probably knew what it was. Like who knows what the actual treatment was, but uh, I think I mean it's a good thing that she only had gonorrhea i guess and not also syphilis um this was before uh condoms probably i mean there there was like that stupid like sheep intestine condom that <laughs> british people use but obviously that's you know that's kind of gross yeah this was pre-birth control probably so i don't know i maybe it was me reading too much into it but it really i mean i think she alice definitely has a crush on Perveen. Maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to tell. I, I do want to read the sequel, and I do want to read the third book that's coming out this year. Because mm. I, I, I am invested in Perveen. I'm invested in the other characters as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, like, because like it's going to go forward. Like, time's going to move forward. It's, it's early yeah. 1920s now, but I don't know, like, th- when the third book is taking place. Yeah, you're heading towards like the partition and then independence in like the 1940s. And there's a lot of meat there. Um, but there's also a lot of like, I think, like we said, a lot of the fun of reading this book was getting immersed in these cultures that were not, at least me and you, we are not familiar with and learning the intricacies and learning the nuances and how they all intersect. Um, I think that is, that was that was why this book was so fun to read. And these days when you're getting a lot of reboots, right? I want to see, much like the Rian Johnson movie Knives Out was like a take on the murder mystery that was fresh. I feel like this is also the same thing, like a take on the classic cozy mystery, murder mystery, but from a fresh perspective that makes the whole thing different. And and yeah, I, I think I'm the same as you. I, I would definitely read the second book when I have you know a free moment. Um, which I have plenty of these days, and um, see what happens next with Perveen. Because I think in the um, in the books and Boba pantheon of um, it's a pantheon of, now <laughs> of unassuming investigators. Um, where does Perveen rank for you? Okay, so um, what? There's Mimi Lee. There's um, there's Masarai. Masarai. There's Masarai. There's uh, the perf- detective, Galileo. detective Galileo, who's not really a detective, <laughs> who's a mathematician, no, who's a physicist, I think, some kind of science professor. Uh, and then, like, and then who else? Uh, IQ, and that's it in terms of mysteries. I guess. Would you consider um, Cass Russell a detective, or she's more of a she's more of like a like a a born? Jason yeah, she's born more of like. A- yeah, it's it's more action. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so Mimi Lee is definitely at the bottom of when it comes to efficient uh, investigating. Well, she wasn't a good investigator. I mean, she was actually a terrible detective. She was, she was terrible. But Chasing that's down what made like it fun. every single yeah, she like chased down every single red herring she could find. So, in terms of like skill as an investigator, not very good. So uh, Mimi Lee. Um, I would say Masarai above that. Masarai was mm. like really good at investigating too, but I just I just preferred Perveen's like method of using the law as a weapon on her side. Well, because Masarai didn't want to, right? He, <laughs> spent, he spent the whole time complaining about it. Uh, he was a good investigator in spite of himself. Yes. IQ. Huh. Okay, so like my my ranking is uh, Galileo, IQ, Perveen, Masarai, Mimi Lee. Mm. I would probably switch IQ with Perveen. I can see that. Because yeah. Perveen, I would hang out with Perveen. I don't know if I would hang out with IQ. 
kind of seems like a jerk. Too. I, I, I th- like in terms of investigative techniques. I right yeah. based on skill, I pro- would probably higher IQ. Yes, over Praveen. I really like the ending. By the way, speaking of like hanging out with Praveen in this book, <laughs> like when they're uh, you know when they're outside the hotel, the Taj Mahal hotel. Oh yeah, it's a very girl power moment. At the yeah, end like like the waiter is like, oh, we don't serve alcoholic drinks to women. During the single day, woman. yeah, to a single woman during the day because uh, you know it makes the other guests uncomfortable. <laughs> and then they, and then she proceeded to lawyer them. I thought, yeah, I, I thought it was really, yeah, yeah girl power moment. I, I loved it. I loved the ending. I mean, the last line was literally girl power, right? To to women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, any other final thoughts? I, mean, I thought it was the perfect book. To read for this month, as um, a lot of people in our Goodreads forum said, I really like historical mystery series. I'm really glad that I found one that uh, that takes place in somewhere somewhere in Asia where it's an Asian detective and not some white old lady who <laughs> who, you know, who's like pro colonialism and whatnot. Um, I really like the genre of historical mysteries because you don't have modern technology and you have to go through so many obstacles that we don't have today. I mean, sexism exists for sure today, but back then it, it was a lot worse and, and yeah. a lot of navigating to do. So I think historical mysteries, they have more creative problem solving. So that's a genre that I really like. And I think Sujata Massey did an incredible job uh, balancing the origin story with the murder mystery and also like the research that she did to make the place a character. I feel the same way. I, I think um, I love that the way, as someone who enjoys mysteries and have read quite a few for this book club, I like the way that she takes um, the the trappings of the murder mystery and subverts it in very clever ways. Whether it's flipping characters, using the setting, but while also using the building blocks of a murder mystery. Um, in the story again i was very very impressed by the revelation that the house that we've seen throughout the entire story was a murder house with secret passages i thought that was i'm still my mind is still blown right now just thinking about how like that was revealed uh so uh very well done and yeah definitely looking forward to checking out the next few stories when i have the time and with that um That'll do it for our discussion of our July 2020 book club pick, The Widows of Malabar Hill um, by Sujata Masi. Uh, Rira, thanks again for picking such a fun read. Um, definitely a good change of pace. Um, so uh, coming up, what are we reading for uh, August 2020? So our August 2020 book club pick is The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Ni Vo. Um, it's a novella, so it's only around like 120 pages, I would say. Very short book. And it's fantasy, if you couldn't guess from the title. <laughs> uh, we, haven't, we haven't visited fantasy in a while, so I'm excited to jump back into that genre. Yeah, um, excited to take a look uh, and excited that it's a shorter read. Um, it will give me time to catch up on other stuff that I'm reading as well. Um, coming up this month we have a bunch of author interviews lined up um, so expect some extra content from Books and Boba Um, but until then thanks so much for listening Um, tell us what you thought about The Widows of Malabar Hill uh, by going to our Goodreads group and letting us know in the forum Rira thanks again for discussing books with me no problem (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thanks for reading everybody alright bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening.
It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.